Therefore, my beloved brethren, who I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle and the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Father, as we come to your word as a church family now, that we've just sent out, Lord, many of them going to camp, uh, leaving right now. Lord, many of us have sown into them through VBS, through Sunday school, through conversations in the hall, and camp is often a reaping time for many of those conversations to to bear fruit. And so, Lord, we do pray for our children that you protect them, that you would go with them, that this would be a, a week in which they would come to know and love Jesus more and more deeply, perhaps for the first time. Lord, may we send them out with a prayer and a blessing that you would be at work in their life at Centra Kid. Uh, may you grant much growth and grace in Christ this week through your word. And Lord, we pray the same for ourselves as we encounter you now through your word. May we also be changed. May we also, as children, grow into the likeness of our older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. May you change us through an encounter with you in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the summer of 1750. The first great awakening had swept over America in the 1730s and 40s, transforming the spiritual landscape. In the summer of 1750, the American states were still the American colonies. George Washington was still a teenager in 1750. And the most well-known pastor ever to be born on American soil was about to be voted out of his church. Jonathan Edwards, God's instrument in the First Great Awakening, was voted out by the members of his own church by a margin of 10 to 1. How did it come to this? Said Theoden King. How did it come to this? Well, before I tell you, let me give you a little taste of who Jonathan Edwards was. You may only know Edwards from your high school English class. If your school was like mine, you were made to listen to an audio recording of a very angry-sounding man reading out the text to sinners in the hands of an angry God. Was that your English class as well? That was mine. Yes, I see a hand or two. Uh, If that's all your exposure to Edwards, then you probably assume that he is just a hell and brimstone revival preacher. If that's your assumption, you'd probably be very surprised to hear that joy was central to the life of Jonathan Edwards. It was central to his conversion to Christianity. In his personal narrative, Edwards described how he became a Christian upon reading the text of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 which says this, Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, 
the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read the words, Edward says, as I read the words, there came into my soul and was, as it were, diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being. A new sense, quite different from anything I had experienced before. Never had any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. I went to pray to God that I might enjoy him and prayed in a manner quite differently from what I used to do with a new sort of affection. After this, my sense of divine things gradually increased and became more and more lively and had more of that inward sweetness. The appearance of everything was altered, Edward says. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm, sweet cast or appearance of divine glory in almost everything. God's excellency, his wisdom, his purity and love seemed to appear in everything. In the sun, moon, and stars, in the clouds, in the blue sky, in grass, flowers, trees, in the water, and all of nature, which used to greatly fix my mind. I often would, would sit to just to view the moon for long stretches of time. And so, in the daytime, spent much time viewing the clouds and the sky to behold the sweet glory of God in these things. In the meantime, singing forth with a low voice my contemplations, of the creator and redeemer. And scarce anything among all the works of nature was so sweet to me as thunder and lightning. Formerly, nothing had so terrified me. I used to be uncommonly terrified with thunder, and it used to strike me with terror when I saw a thunderstorm rising. But now, on the contrary, it rejoiced me. I felt God, so to speak, at the first appearance of a thunderstorm and used to take the opportunity at such times to fix myself to view the clouds and see the lightnings play and hear the majestic and awful voice of God's thunder leading me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God. Now, I know what you're thinking. My English teachers lied to me. This man is nothing like what I was led to believe. Instead of being the sourpuss that you cross the street in order to avoid, Edwards is actually the guy you want to take with you on a walk and watch a thunderstorm with. He's that kind of guy. He's not the angry voice you once heard in your American literature class. He seems to be far more acquainted with joy than any of my high school English teachers ever were. Nevertheless, this man was fired from his church. A church he pastored for over 20 years, a church which grew greatly under his ministry, a people who experienced real revival under his preaching. Why? Why did this happen? Well, the answer is messy. Because the nature of human relationships in a broken world is messy, isn't it? Part of the mess was probably Edward's own fault. In conducting some interviews for a church discipline situation involving a group of young men, Edward's read off 
the names of the guilty parties and the innocent witnesses together, making no distinction at all between them, thereby covering them all in a cloud of suspicion. In, in the pastor trade, that's what we call a, a poor decision, <laughs> a, a poor pastoral judgment call, uh, one that angered many families. Uh, part of the mess was Edward's, but part of the mess was also Edward's times. In that time, in the mid-1700s, church and state were still closely linked together. Being a good citizen, uh, being a citizen in good standing also meant being a church member in good standing. This led people who gave no profession of faith in Christ, no testimony of personal conversion to be members of their local church, receiving communion and having their children baptized as Christians. Edwards, however, came to to the conviction that this was wrong. This was wrong. He drew a line saying, only those who profess faith in Jesus can partake of the Lord's Supper. A radical stance, right? A radical stance, I know. But with all the other things in the mix, this issue of communion, we're going to celebrate communion today, this issue of communion is what led the church at Northampton in Massachusetts to fire one of the most well-known and revered pastors in American history. In his farewell sermon, Edwards chose a text very similar to the one we're looking at this morning. He chose 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, which in the Old King James says this, As also you have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul says to the church at Corinth that on the day of Christ's return, you are my reason for rejoicing even as I am yours. You, church, that I've planted, that I've pastored, are my joy and crown before the throne of Christ. From this verse, Edwards made the following point. He said, ministers and the people under their care must meet one another before Christ's tribunal at the day of judgment. Pastors and the people in their care will one day meet again before the judgment seat of Christ. The book of James says, Let not many of you become teachers, brethren, as such will incur a stricter judgment. There will be a judgment. Edwards contended that this judgment isn't a private affair. It's not a closed-door meeting. It is a public hearing. It includes all those you've influenced for good or ill. Pastors and the people under their care must meet before the throne of Jesus. Because, on the one hand, they are one another's joy and crown. But also, there may be some mess to sort out. And some scores to eternally set right. In our passage today, we see both of those things coming together. We see the joy and we see the mess. We, we see others in the church being our crown before Jesus, and we see others in the church being the elephant in the room, flinging mud on everyone else. Both can be true, and because the world is a messy place, you will see both being true. 
Let's see the joy first, though. That's what comes first. Look at verse 1. Verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul calls the church in Philippi his joy and crown. Remember, Paul was instrumental in starting this church. Uh, Remember Lydia in the book of Acts. Lydia was in Philippi, who Paul preached the gospel to. She was converted and saved. Remember the 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 Philippian jailer, right? Where was the Philippine? I want to say Filipino. Where was the Philippian jailer? He was in Philippi as well. Uh, This is a church that was started by Paul. Paul preached to them. They heard the gospel. He was the, the, the beginner of this good work. Remember all these people? Uh, as with Philippi, as with Corinth, as with all these churches that Paul planted and the people he ministered to, Paul says, you, you are my joy and crown. You are my joy and crown in the presence of Jesus. My joy and crown in heaven, that's, that's who you are. My joy and crown in heaven is you being there. If Jonathan Edwards were preaching this verse, he wouldn't let you miss out on this truth. The people in your church are meant to be your joy and crown in the presence of Jesus. Do you see that? Do you get that? Your crown in heaven consists of your connections and kingdom impact on the people sitting next to you, on the, uh, on the people in your church family. Likewise, their crown is their connection and kingdom impact upon people like you. The people you shared life with and served alongside and helped through difficult times, God intends for them to be part of your eternal joy. That's a great thing. That is good news. In the late 1980s, it became popular in many churches to sing, during the the special music time, of course, to sing a song with lyrics that said, Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed, right? Uh, The image that that song put in my young mind as a child of the 1980s uh, was this long heavenly line of people who were virtual strangers to me that somehow my life had touched with the gospel. Now, no doubt, like stones thrown into a pool, our actions have ripple effects that we aren't aware of. No doubt that's true. We will find out one day that we are spiritual grandparents to scores of people that we don't know. I have no doubt of that. But the feeling that song gave to me as a child of impacting people I never knew in life isn't the feeling that I get here from Paul. Paul knows the people. Paul knows the faces of the people. Paul knows the people who make up his joy and crown in the presence of Jesus. I can think back over the two churches that we helped plant in Europe, and I can picture the faces 
of the people. I can picture the faces, many of them now scattered out all over the world. I know that we will meet again. We will meet again before Christ's tribunal on the day of judgment, and these people will be part of my joy. They will be part of my crown in the presence of Christ. I think that I can feel something of Paul's heart here as he writes these words, but those feelings are also what brought us back to you, to y'all. As I look out at your faces, I see people who will stand with me on the last day as part of my joy and crown in the presence of Jesus. People who I've had a hand in discipling and who in turn have made a huge impact upon me. You, church, you are my joy and crown, just as I hope to be yours in the presence of Christ. We will be each other's joy and crown if. If what? Paul anticipates the answer to that question in verse 1. If we stand firm, if we stand firm in the Lord, you will be my joy and crown if you stand firm in the Lord, holding tightly and joyfully to the gospel. I will be your joy and crown if I stand firm in the Lord, leading myself, leading others to hold tightly and joyfully to the gospel. You can see why these two thoughts are so closely connected for Paul, can't you? The churches he has planted and the believers he's discipled are his joy and crown if they stand firm to the end. Remember what Paul said last week at the end of chapter 3. He said, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul wept for those who walked away from Jesus. And so should we. It's right to weep for those who walk away, who oppose the good news that they once seemed to accept, who deconstruct their faith and now find no place for Jesus in it. It's right to weep for those who walk away, but it's also right to rejoice in those who stand firm now. Because one day they will be a source of never ending joy and fellowship for us. Realize this, that God has given you this church family for your joy. For your joy, for your eternal joy. Treat these people like they will be your crown one day. How would you treat a crown? How would you do it? You would treasure a crown, right? You would treasure it because a crown is a treasure. You would honor it because a crown conveys honor to you. You would polish it, wouldn't you? You'd polish it because it's worth the elbow grease. It's worth your time to make it shine. 
That's, that's true for Christians as well. It's worth your time to make it shine. All those things are true for crowns, are also true for the person sitting next to you today. More true, in fact. These, these people aren't perishable. Crowns are perishable. These people have souls that are imperishable. Christian, treasure one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Polish one another with gospel truth because you will be eternally glad that you did. One day you will be so glad. Jonathan Edwards wrote 70 resolutions to guide his life. I'll just share one with him, one with you. Number 17, what was it? Number 17 was this, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. That's a good resolution, isn't it? That's a pretty good resolution. But if I could, here's how I might improve upon it a little bit, if I, if I dare to improve upon it. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done 10,000 years from now. 10,000 years from now. 10,000 years from now, when we have no less days to sing God's praise, how will you have wished you handled that relationship with another believer? How would you wish you would have responded in that conflict, in that disagreement, in that difficult situation? 10,000 years from now, how will you have wished you would have responded? If we will one day stand together before Christ's tribunal, where every issue of the heart is made known and made clear, how will we wish that we had acted towards one another now? That's the question I try to ask myself when I'm going through a tough time. When the going gets tough, 10,000 years from now, what will I wish I would have done? And then I try to do that thing. I ask myself, would an idiot do this thing? And if the answer is yes, I do not do that thing, right? I, what would I want to do 10,000 years from now? I seek to do that thing. But even in a world where we can be each other's joy and crown, the very same relationships may put us in hard positions, forcing us to ask hard questions because life is just messy. Even among Paul's co-workers, co-laborers, it is messy. Let's see the mess in verse two. Look at me, verses two and three. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche. Mike and I had a conference earlier on how to pronounce those names. That's the definitive pronunciation. I'm not going to pronounce them again. I urge them to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I urge you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, also the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Among the people who are Paul's joy and crown in Philippi, are two women. Two women who have had a falling out. 
with one another. We don't know the reason why. We're not told. It probably had nothing to do with the color of the church carpet or the church business meeting not being following the Roberts rules, just so. But whatever the reason, be it personalities that clashed or unwise decisions that were made or intentional slights that were given, Christians can do that. Whatever the reason, the relational mess was not working itself out. Paul had to intervene, pastorally intervene. By the time Paul wrote this letter, these two women clearly weren't reconciled. They were living out of harmony with one another. And remember, again, these two women were co-laborers with Paul, who had shared in his suffering and struggle in the cause of the gospel. They weren't like Statler and Waldorf, those two Muppets who just bicker between one another and heckle from the sidelines. That's not who these women were. These women, along with Clement, were real gospel workers. They were the workers. They were doing real gospel ministry. They were fellow workers with Paul. Even with the messy conflict that's happening, Paul feels so assured of the genuineness of their faith that he confidently says about them, their names are written in the book of life. How can such people fall out with one another? How is that possible? How could Jonathan Edwards, how could his church give him the boot? The underlying answer is the same. In a fallen world, life is just messy. And relationships are often messy. There's a lot of room for misunderstanding, a lot of room for offense, a lot of blind spots, and a lot of sin. But in the midst of all the mess, there is hope. What does Paul call for in this messy situation? He calls on the, first, he calls on the two ladies to live in harmony with one another. Jesus makes reconciliation possible, right? And Paul calls on you, true companion, a.k.a. average church member. Help these women live in harmony. Yes, there is a mess here among God's servants, but God has redeemed his servants to help clean up the mess. Yes, relationships often fray, but as far as it depends upon you, help work for peace in every situation. Yes, gospel workers can fall out with one another, but the gospel is great enough to help them fall back in, back in step together again. You may be, be part of someone else's joy and crown when you help them heal from relational wounds. Until the king returns, there will always be relational messes in the world and in the church. But as much as you can be, be part of the solution, not part of the problem. That's what Paul's calling us to. That's what God is calling us to. You'll be motivated to do this when you see people for what they really are, for what they will be 10,000 years from now. That's the way you should look at one another. 
what will this person be 10,000 years from now? Treat them now as you shall wish you had then. To respond this way takes faith, doesn't it? Faith to look beyond the here and now. Faith to look beyond the, the temporary offense. Faith to see the offender as a brother, as a sister whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Faith to look forward 10,000 years from now as a guide for how to act in the here and now. Faith to see that this frail saint sitting next to you is actually part of your joy and crown forever. The main reason we still read Jonathan Edwards today is because he had that kind of faith. That kind of spiritual vision of the world. And he saw, he, he saw it uh, through even the most stinging of relational disappointments. His faith held firm. He stood firm. You can read his farewell sermon today uh, to his church that fired him. And it is full of affection. Not bitterness, but affection for the church family that rejected him. Edwards didn't live to see it, but we know that history vindicated him. We believe today in the separation of church and state. We believe today in a regenerate church membership coming to the Lord's table. The same things that got him into hot water as a congregation, everyone, all evangelicals believe today. Ed, Edwards waited patiently, but never saw himself vindicated. Or did he? Yes, he did. Or, or he will. A day of judgment is coming in which everything will be seen in its true colors. All deception will be removed. All wrongs will be eternally righted. You may have been relationally wronged in this life. I imagine you have been. It may have even been at the hands of a fellow believer. You've done your best to pursue healing and relational harmony, like Paul says to do here, but it does take two to tango, as they say. You can't restore a relationship all on your own. And for that reason, restoration may not come in this life. So what do you do? You look to Christ and do what naturally follows when you look to Christ. You forgive as Christ has forgiven you. You wish well the other person as Christ wishes you well, pours out blessings upon you, and you wait. You wait for final vindication, just as Christ waited for his. You wait to stand before Christ's tribunal seat where all secrets come to light and all the mess is sorted out. You wait and you stick it out. You stick it out with the church. Why? Because you can't have the joy and crown without having the people of God, without the church. You can't. If you take away the bonds that we forge in the local church, you are in effect 
melting down your crown. You're decreasing your capacity for joy. Make no mistake, every Christian's joy in heaven will be full. Jonathan Edwards said that every saint's cup is completely full, overflowing with heaven's delights. Every vessel that's cast into the ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels larger than others. Because these saints expanded them in life by bringing others in to their joy in Jesus. The church is the context in which you expand your capacity for joy in heaven. How do you do that? By becoming one another's joy and crown in the world that is coming. At Christ's return, you are meant to be one another's joy. You are meant to be one another's crown. So let's start acting like it now, right? Let's start acting like it now. You can't have the joy and crown while being completely divorced from the church. Just can't be. And you can't have the church completely divorced from the mess either. Church is messy. It's a hospital for sinners, after all. Church is often messy, but it is always worth it. Always worth it. It is in working through the mess that God intends for us to grow up, that God intends to change our lives, making us more like Jesus. So stand firm, church. Stand firm in the Lord. In the midst of the mess, stand firm. In the midst of the women who can't get along, in the midst of the men who can't see past their pride, stand firm in the Lord, risking the temporary relational hurt because Its reward is eternal, relational joy. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you now, we desire you to write this upon our hearts. Lord, may we see one another, our church family, as our joy and crown. There will be falling out. There will be mess. But we have a gospel and we have a Savior sufficient. Sufficient to wash us clean. Sufficient to reconcile. Sufficient to bring us together with joy in his presence forever. Lord, may you be at work in our hearts. Mending, healing relationships. uh, Healing us in regards to one another, but also supremely, we thank you that we have the ultimate healing. We have the ultimate relationship mended through the Lord Jesus. He suffered so much. He suffered the cross and the grave to bring us to God. May we take pains as well in mending our relationships and in loving one another as Christ has loved us. May this be the, the response of our heart now in faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond to God's word now by coming to the Lord's table. Jonathan Edwards was right. The table is just for believers. Participating in communion is meant to be an expression of your personal faith in Jesus. Our faith in the one whose blood washes clean our mess, whose broken body 
fully pays off our brokenness. So if you're here this morning and your heart is loving Jesus, you're believing the good news of his gospel, I invite you to come to the Lord's table this morning. Come in faith, come in humility, come in repentance. And receive Christ's assurance at this table that he has given himself to wash you clean of all the mess that you have made. As the communion hymn plays, we're going to be coming to two tables this morning. Uh, You can take the elements as you receive them there, or I'd encourage you, take them with you off to the side or back to your seat and pray together as a family before you receive them. As a group of friends gathered together, pray and receive the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is a sweet time of connection with Christ, our Lord, but it's also a sweet time of connection with one another as, as one body, as a family together. And because that's the case, let me say one more thing. If you feel out of fellowship with someone here, Jesus told you what to do. He said, leave your offering. First, go and be reconciled. Be made right with your brother. Then come to the altar and worship. If you need to take someone by the hand and go out to our worship lobby and just say, I think I've hurt you. I think I need to say sorry. I think I've made a mess of things. Then do it. Just do it. Jesus established this meal in the life of the church as a rhythm of examination and repentance. It's the perfect time to do business with God and with one another. So let's stand together now and prepare our hearts as we come to the Lord's table. Father, I ask that you would prepare us to receive this testimony from our Lord of his love and care for us. Where there is mess, may we look to Jesus at his table and find cleansing. Where there is pride, may we find ourselves humbled by a Savior who would die in our place. Where there is brokenness, may we look to him this morning and find healing. Lord, as we partake of the bread and the cup, may we do so remembering and proclaiming our Savior's death until the King comes again. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory.